the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Today we're going to talk in the 5 o'clock hour with uh, Pastor Jarrett Stevens. This is his first book, and it's titled The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves. And he makes reference to what the scriptures have to say about those mountaintop, those extraordinary mountaintop experiences and how we can gain insight uh, into um, God's heart and his plan for us by studying his word primarily and uh, those instances in his word more specifically. So we're looking forward to that again in the five o'clock hour. First, to take a look at some of the developing news stories, FBI agents searched a Baltimore family home of the suspected gunman who opened fire at a Florida gaming tournament on Sunday, killing two before turning the gun on himself and dying uh, from a self-inflicted wound. Senator John McCain will be buried at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, on the 2nd of September. After a week of memorial services, his family announced McCain died on Saturday after a year-long battle with brain cancer. And the United States and Mexico reached a deal on NAFTA, or something like NAFTA, with a different name we don't yet know. And in an interview with Fox News, former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski said that he warned then-candidate Donald Trump and his aides that his longtime personal lawyer Michael Cohen would become a problem. And hundreds of well-wishers attended the funeral of Iowa student Molly Tibbetts on Sunday as her father said it was time for the community to heal and his daughter was nobody's victim. Well, armed FBI agents searched the Baltimore townhouse home of the father of the suspect in a deadly shooting at a Florida video game tournament as they looked for a possible motive in that attack. Witnesses said the suspected gunman, David Katz, 24, of Baltimore, was angry after losing at a Madden 19 NFL tournament at a restaurant in Jacksonville. He is believed to have opened fire um, uh, at the event at the Chicago Pizza Restaurant and Bar in Jacksonville Landing, killing two people before turning the gun on himself and wounding others as well. Eleven people injured, nine of them with gunshot wounds. Katz, whose vehicle was located and impounded by investigators, is believed to have stayed somewhere locally on Saturday night before the shooting. Jacksonville mass shooting has sparked a call for tighter e-security at these events, e-sports security. Apparently there was none at this particular event. And the United States and Mexico looked closer, or rather close earlier today and now um, much closer to resolving key differences on the North American Free Trade Agreement and may have a complete deal worked out uh, as uh, as the details are being made public. Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said on Sunday morning that the administration has no announcements or anything finalized at this time, despite the president's enthusiastic tweet on Saturday that there could be a big trade agreement soon. And President Trump's uh, former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, slammed the president's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, after he pleaded guilty last week to federal charges and implicating the president in a crime. Cohen pleaded, uh, pled guilty, rather, to tax evasion, campaign finance violations and bank fraud. Speaking on Fox News on Sunday, Lewandowski sought it to distance Trump from the former attorney and denied that uh, Cohen played any significant role in Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. I was very clear when I was in charge of the campaign 
Michael was not somebody who we wanted to, at the campaign, Lewandowski said. Uh, he would uh, go out and make statements that we had to walk back afterwards because he would say things which were factually untrue. I warned everybody at the organization that Michael was going to become a problem. Boy, he had no idea to what extent that would turn out to be true. And the father of Molly Tibbetts, the Iowa college student whose disappearance caught the nation's attention, told members of the small community where she lived and studied to turn toward the light at his daughter's funeral on Sunday, a mass in the afternoon. Today we need to turn the page, Rob Tibbetts said, according to the Des Moines Register. We're at the end of a long ordeal, but we need to turn toward life, Molly's life, because Molly's nobody's victim. Tibbetts, a student at the University of Iowa, was found dead in a cornfield on the 21st by investigators who were led there by farm worker Christian Rivera, who is 24, had been charged with first degree murder in the death of um, Ms. Tibbetts. Investigators have said he is in the United States illegally and lived in Iowa for four to seven years. And on this day in 2017, Hurricane Harvey sent devastating floods into Houston. With rising water chasing thousands of people to rooftops and higher ground, streets became rivers navigable only by boat. And on this day in 2008, Barack Obama was nominated for president by the Democratic National Convention in Denver. He would go on, of course, to serve as president. And on this day in 1964, Mary Poppins, starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke, premiered at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. 1964. Well, John McCain is dead at 81. He was diagnosed with brain cancer in July of 2017. Uh, doctors discovered the tumor during a medical procedure to remove a blood clot from above his left eye. He remained up, uh, upbeat about the uh, diagnosis, flying back to Washington days after surgery with a large scar visible above his eye to partake in Senate's, the Senate's health care debate. I greatly appreciate the outpouring of support, he said at the time. Unfortunately for my sparring partners in Congress, I'll be back soon, so stand by. McCain tweeted on the 20th of July after his diagnosis. Well, on Friday, his family issued a statement saying last summer, Senator John McCain shared with Americans the news our family already knew. He had been diagnosed with an aggressive glioblastoma, and the prognosis was serious. In the years since, John has surpassed expectations for his survival, but the progress of disease and the inexorable advance of age render their verdict. They added his uh, usual strength of will. He has now chosen to discontinue medical treatment. McCain's wife, Cindy, tweeted that her heart is broken following her husband's death. I am so lucky to have lived the adventure of loving this incredible man for 38 years, she said. He passed the way he lived on his own terms, surrounded by the people he loved in the place he loved best. The senator's daughter, Megan, posted a heartfelt note online in which she said that the last of her uh, lifetime, um, the task rather of her lifetime is to live up to her father's example, his expectations and his love. My father is gone and I miss him as only an adoring daughter can, she wrote. He has a great fire who uh, that's burned out and we, um, this isn't written correctly, uh, we live in his light and warmth Uh, So very uh, we did so so very long. We know that his uh, flame lives on in each of us. The days and years to come will not be the same without my dad, but they will be good days filled with life and love because of the the example he lived for us. Well, McCain, John McCain was born in 1936 in the Panama Canal Zone, where his father was stationed in the Navy. After graduating from the Naval Academy in 1958, uh, John McCain went to Vietnam in 1967. His A-4 Skyhawk was hit by a surface-to-air missile in Hanoi, or rather over Hanoi. McCain was captured by the northern Vietnamese. 
who tortured and beat him for more than five years. He was in solitary confinement for several of those years. My room was fairly decent sized. I say about 10 by 10, McCain would later write. The door was solid. There were no windows. The only ventilation came from two small holes in the top of the ceiling with about six by four inches. The roof was 10. It was Hot as, well, Hades in there, he said. McCain's injuries from his imprisonment were visible the rest of his life, most notably the restricted movement of his arms. He got a taste of politics in 1976 when he served as the Navy's liaison to the Senate. And in 1982, John McCain was elected to the House of Representatives. Only a few years later, in 1986, rather, he won the race to replace Arizona's conservative Senator Barry Goldwater. He was implicated in what became known as the Keating Five scandal in 1989, a with several other lawmakers of helping the owner of the Lincoln Savings and Loan, who had donated to his campaign. McCain ran twice for president. In 2000, he ran for the Republican nomination for president, winning New Hampshire's primary, but losing the nomination to George W. Bush. In 2008, he defended a host of Republican candidates to win the GOP nomination for president. He was responsible for introducing then-Alaska Governor Sarah Palin to a national audience by uh, tapping her as his running mate. The McCain-Palin ticket went on to lose the general election to Barack Obama, who became the country's first African-American president. For years, McCain declined to call his choice of Palin a mistake, but in his upcoming book, The Restless Wave, McCain reportedly writes that he regrets not choosing his friend, then U.S. Senator Joseph Lieberman, a Democrat out of Connecticut, as his running mate, calling it another mistake that I made. Lieberman, the 2000 Democrat nominee for vice president, was an independent who caucused with Democrats. Well, during his last years in politics, he had a complicated relationship with President Trump, who infamously attacked McCain during the GOP primary. In May, the McCain family was offended when it was reported that Trump aide Kelly Sadler dismissed McCain's opposition to the president's choice for CIA director by quipping during the private meeting, it doesn't matter, he's dying anyway. Well, according to the New York Times, McCain has made uh, clear that the White House, um, rather to the White House, he doesn't want the president to attend his funeral and would instead prefer Vice President Mike Pence at the service. McCain is survived by his wife, Cindy, seven children and five grandchildren. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend Engineering and producing today's program. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jarrett Stevens. He's the author of The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and ourselves. We've been talking about the legacy of John McCain. A lot has been said in the coming days about, or will be said in the coming days, about Senator John McCain and his place among the pantheon of American heroes. It will all be very well deserved. McCain, who was the son and grandson of admirals, uh, was indeed a hero. In fact, Walter Lohman writes about him, pointing out that the Arizona Republican service in Vietnam was a testament to that, as was his career in the House and the Senate. McCain, who succumbed to cancer on Saturday at his ranch in Sedona, Arizona, was committed to principle. Many of those principles were bedrock conservative ideas, although not all. Faith in free markets and trade, strong national defense, defense of liberty around the world. Others 
Republicans are less appreciated and increasingly rare. McCain was the sort of leader who sought to bring the nation together, not to divide it. He believed fiercely in bipartisanship, not a sac- not in sacrifice of principle, but in furtherance of it. He also believed in fighting hard, but patching it up once the fight was over. Especially in the Internet age, mourning and tribute are fleeting, even more so for a senator whose one vote counts just as much as those of his colleagues. Even before the praise fades, Washington will begin speculating on what the loss of that one impersonal vote means and who may succeed him in casting it. What will never fade is the impact that John McCain had on the people with whom he came in contact. Uh, Mr. Walter Lohman says that he had the honor to work with him for six years and there was never a day then or since that I was not proud of that fact. He instilled in me a sense of decency and pursuit of principle that I am in turn passing on to my children. I loved John McCain. He writes, I will miss him, but my uh, but his family will miss him more. I hope they can console themselves just a little with the knowledge that his legacy endures it endures in the strong, secure, free, and prosperous nation that he served, and it endures in the many people like me who are blessed to know him. Again, quoting from Walter Lohman regarding the legacy of John McCain. Well, Senator McCain will lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda and receive full-dress funeral service at the Washington National Cathedral. Mr. McCain uh, represented Arizona in Congress for 35 years. He'll also lie in state at the Arizona Capitol before his burial in Annapolis, Maryland, according to um, officials uh, familiar with the details. President George W. Bush and Barack, President Barack Obama uh, have been asked to offer eulogies at his funeral. Vice President Mike Pence was also asked to attend. Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, the top Senate Democrat, said on Saturday that he would introduce a resolution to rename the Russell Senate Office Building. In fact, that vote was uh, underway when this program began. I'm not sure of the outcome, but I'm certain it was uh, probably unanimous. Currently named for Senator Richard Russell of Georgia, who often opposed civil rights legislation in honor of Mr. McCain. More than 30 people have been honored by lying in state in the Capitol Rotunda, the gesture that's reserved for the country's most eminent citizens since the practice began in 1852 after the death of Henry Clay, the former House Speaker and Senator from Kentucky. Mr. McCain would be the 13th former senator to be granted that honor, according to uh, to sources. Well, such remembrances in the Capitol are either formally approved by congressional resolution or authorized by the congressional leadership, according to the architect of the Capitol. In Arizona, Governor Doug Ducey ordered uh, all flags to be lowered at half staff, and there was a bit of drama in Washington, D.C., where the same had been called for, and the typical practice is to leave it half staff for uh, virtually a day. It was raised, and of course, a lot was read into that. It's since been lowered. Again, well, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey will have big shoes to fill as he mulls over who's going to uh, who he's going to appoint to temporarily fill the U.S. Senate seat of the late John McCain until the special election can be held to complete uh, his term. Arizona is one of 36 states where a governor makes an appointment to fill a U.S. Senate vacancy, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Therefore, Governor Ducey will appoint an interim senator to fill McCain's seat. Now, because John McCain was a Republican, state law requires Ducey to appoint a member of the same party, a move that's uh, critically important for the Trump administration as the GOP currently holds a bare 51-49 Senate majority. Well, the newly appointed senator would be in office until the next general election, November of 2020, the interim senator would not be uh, uh, obligated to run uh, in that election. Whomever is elected to the Senate seat in November of 2020 would complete McCain's term, which expires 
in January of 2023. Now, if the governor chooses one of the state's current congressional members to fill that seat, then a special election would need to be held uh, to fill that empty spot. According to the Arizona State Legislature, that election would have to be held not less than 120 um, nor more than 133 days after the vacancy occurs. So that's what will happen next, although the governor has indicated he will make no indication of what his plans are until a sufficient period of mourning uh, has uh, taken place and Senator McCain is finally laid to rest. All right. I want to remind you that coming up in the five o'clock this hour this afternoon, we're going to talk with Jarrett Stevens. He is a pastor and uh, this is his first book. The mountains are calling, making the climb for a clearer view of God and ourselves. He takes a look at nine events in scripture that were mountaintop events and, uh, suggests that as we open God's word, we don't have to physically make our way up a mountain side in order to reach the top, but we can glean from uh, God's word what he intended, not only for those directly involved in those events uh, to uh, to learn, but also um, what he wants to say to us today. Well, President Trump won a major victory on trade today, supplanting the North American Free Trade Agreement and replacing it with something far more beneficial. The New Deal will help American workers and manufacturers. It's also a win for Mexico. At least that's what we think as the details are rolled out in the short term. One of the most fundamental parts of the uh, Trump campaign was his promise to change America's deeply flawed trade arrangements. Uh, these de- these uh, deals rather left us with massive $500 billion trade deficits, a huge drag on the economy and devastated forgotten communities across America that are dependent on manufacturing jobs. Second only to the booming economy, Monday's announcement of a deal with Mexico is the most visible manifestation of the president's fulfillment of that campaign promise. Last year, the USA uh, had a large $71 billion trade in goods deficit with Mexico, owing in part to much lower worker pay. Uh, This new deal will limit Mexico's ability to take U.S. manufacturing jobs by underpaying its workers. Another key part of the new trade deal increases the percentage of a car that must be made in North America to qualify for lower tariff import into the United States. This will be a major boon to American automotive workers and that industry's domestic supply chain. The president understood the simple math that can that. um, countries with which we have uh, trade deficits would have uh, have to come to the negotiating table. More broadly, the deal vindicates the president's approach to trade, which has been uh, lambasted by voices ranging from Wall Street to the national um, security establishments to the Chamber of Commerce, uh, as well as um, mavens from both political parties. They said nothing could come from Trump's unilateral imposition of tariffs in order to get foreign governments to negotiate seriously. They said a trade war would be uh, self-defeating. On Monday, they've been proved wrong by an unmitigated victory for the United States. Of course, details have to be rolled out. These are just some of the preliminary details. Um, This victory will lead to others. It's being predicted the government in Canada, which is uh, much further to the left under its current leadership and other members of NAFTA, had refused to negotiate seriously, perhaps believing their friends in the progressive um, uh, cadre um, would uh, see Trump's demise. Well, Canada's foreign minister uh, spent most of her time on visits to the United States lobbying, lobbying rather governors and congressmen rather than talking seriously uh, to our trade negotiators. Her boss, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, even thought, uh, even though it was a good idea to antagonize Trump at his uh, failed G7 summit in June, 
uh, failed to take this seriously. Well, Canada must now return hat in hand for the deal, one would assume. If not, the president will advance the deal with Mexico, leave Canada behind. Today, he again vowed to raise car tariffs on Canada if it refuses to revise unfair levies on nearly 300 percent of some American goods, among other unfair practices. So time will only tell. And of course, the government of Mexico and the United States have to affirm that they accept this deal. By the way, stocks jumped on Monday as the United States and Mexico closed this new trade deal. Investors also digested reassuring comments from the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell on the central bank's policy tightening path. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 260 points as Caterpillar outperformed. The Nasdaq Composite climbed 1% to an all-time high, breaking above 8,000 for the first time as Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet rose. The S&P 500 gained 0.8% to hit the record high with material and financials as the best performing sectors. Well, we'll continue to keep our eye on it all. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a shooting on Sunday during a gaming event at a popular shopping center in Jacksonville, Florida, killed two people and wounded several others before the gunman killed himself. The gunfire was heard around 1 p.m. Eastern time at a video gaming event held at the Jacksonville Landing. It was the Madden NFL Championship Series. In addition to the two killed in the attack, 11 people were injured, nine of them with gunshot wounds, according to the Jacksonville Sheriff Mike Williams. Speaking at a news conference, he said the gunman was believed to be 24-year-old David Katz of Baltimore, who was in Florida for the gaming tournament. Law enforcement sources earlier said four people were killed before the sheriff revised that number down uh, to three that included the gunman. The incident is being investigated as a criminal act and not an act of terrorism. Uh, while the sheriff's office has taken the lead in the case, the FBI's Jacksonville office has deployed personnel to assist local law enforcement in that investigation. Uh, one witness at the gaming event said that uh, someone who was completely rather competing in the tournament lost and was upset. A previous account from the witness stated the suspect went crazy and started shooting up the room, but later clarified that um, uh, that in events like this, there are multiple guys who are upset or are saying that things like, um, well, I won't repeat. Police have not confirmed a possible motive, although they raided his uh, the home he is believed to have been living in at the time. The gamer said he had gone outside of the building, which he said had roughly 50 people inside to make a phone call. When the shots rang out, he said he saw people fighting to get out of the place. He started running from the area as well. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and Explosives wrote on Twitter it was responding to the shooting in downtown Jacksonville. The Memorial Hospital says that three individuals were being treated, remained stable, uh, in stable condition, um, the, uh, and confirmed six victims with gunshot wounds were transported to the university hospital, hospital rather, all between the ages of 20 and 35. Five were in stable condition while one uh, is in serious condition. The Jacksonville Landing area is located along the St. John's River, described as an area with a wide variety of waterfront dining options and a cozy um, uh, shopping area. Well, the deadly shooting during this uh, Madden NFL tournament in Jacksonville sun- on Sunday rather has prompted calls for uh, tighter security at professional video game events. 
Apparently, there was no security. The gunman killed two and uh, then fatally shot himself. Professional video gaming or esports is the fastest growing industry where players compete against each other for lucrative prizes, often in front of large audiences. The events also have a huge following online uh, via streaming platforms such as Twitch and YouTube. Well, Sunday's tournament was held at the GLHF game bar, which is uh, next to the Chicago Pizza, and shares a door with the restaurant, according to the website. Well, gamers were taking part in a qualifying um, round of um, the Madden NFL 19 Classic in Las Vegas in October. At the Madden Classic Live Finals, competitors play for a share of the tournament's $165,000 prize pool, with the winner taking home $25,000, according to the game developer. Professional gaming team's uh, complexity, rather, had a player at the Jacksonville event Jason Lake, the founder and CEO of Complexity, said on Twitter that the 19-year-old um, uh, that was near him was shot in the thumb. Uh, n- all of that to say that apparently there was very little, if any, security uh, at the event. And there's a call now for uh, tighter esports security at these and other events across the country that will culminate in that uh, event in Las Vegas. Well, apparently the, um, uh, the the polling following the Manafort and Cohen disclosures of last week, also known as the mess, apparently barely moved the approval rating for President Trump within a margin of error. The numbers haven't moved much. Meanwhile, uh, Michael Cohen's lawyer is backpedaling on bombshell claims he made last week about his client's knowledge of President Trump's supposed awareness of Russian efforts to influence the 2016 presidential election. Lanny Davis, who's a longtime Clinton confidant who now represents the ex-Trump attorney, had been a source for reports saying his client had information that the president knew in advance about the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting involving Donald Trump Jr. and Russian attorney Natalia, I won't attempt the last name. Davis also suggested that Cohen had direct knowledge of Russia hacking into emails of the Democratic power players. But now Davis is walking back his statements, telling the Washington Post that he should have been more clear that he could not independently confirm what happened. He said in a separate statement today, I uh, take the responsibility for not communicating more clearly my uncertainty. I regret the error, he went on to say. Well, um, Trump's alleged knowledge of the Trump Tower meeting was first reported by CNN on the 27th of July. The outlet reported that Cohen was present for a conversation informing Trump of the Russians' offer to provide dirt on Hillary Clinton. Cohen witnessed Trump's uh, uh, Trump approve the meeting CNN had reported. Well, the following day, the Post also reported that Cohen witnessed Trump Jr. informing his father about the meeting where they expected to receive information on Clinton. The Post did not confirm that Trump uh, was told the information would come from the Russians. Well, Trump, following the publication of CNN, fired back. I did not know of the meeting with my son, Don Jr. Sounds to me like someone is trying to make up stories in order to get himself out of an unrelated jam. Uh, he's, uh, he even retained Bill and Crooked Hillary's lawyer. Gee, I wonder if they helped him make the choice, Trump tweeted on the 27th. Well, over the weekend, Davis clarified his claims. I should have been more clear, he now says, including with you, uh, speaking to The Washington Post, that I could not independently confirm what happened, he told The Post this weekend. Well, Davis began walking back the allegations days earlier when during an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, he was asked whether there was evidence that Trump knew about the meeting before it happened. No, there's not, Davis said. Trump again maintained that he knew nothing of the meeting beforehand and blasted the reports as fake news. 
Michael Cohen's attorney clarified the record, saying his client does not know if President Trump knew about the Trump Tower meeting, out of which came nothing. The answer is that I did not know the president tweeted about the meeting. Just another phony story by the fake news media. He tweeted that on Saturday. Well, Michael Cohen's attorney clarified the record, saying his client does not know if President Trump knew about the Trump Tower meeting, out of which uh, came nothing. The answer is um, is that he misspoke and why he brought it up is something of a mystery. Now, we're going to take a break in just a few moments, but I want to begin um, what Politico is reporting could be a sleeper case that could torpedo the Mueller investigation or the report that comes out of it or the fact that a report could come out of it. It might even keep the special counsel from sending a report to Congress, shaking Democrats' hopes that such a document could provide the impetus for impeachment proceedings. Josh Gerstein, writing for Political, points out to give you the best possible experience. Well, that's not what he wrote. A little uh, noticed court case stemming from the apparent murder of a Columbia University professor six decades ago could keep special counsel Robert Mueller from publishing any information about the Trump campaign and Russia that he obtains through a Washington grand jury. Well, let's back up a bit. The substance of that case is entirely unrelated to Mueller's investigation into whether any of President Donald Trump's associates aided Russia's efforts to intervene in the 2016 election. But if a Washington appeals court set to hear the murder-related case next month sides with the Justice Department and rules that judges don't have the freedom to release grand jury information that is usually kept secret, it could throw a monkey wrench to put it mildly, into any plans Mueller has to issue a public uh, report on his probe's findings. Lawyers following the issue have said. And it might even keep the special counsel from sending a report to Congress, shaking Democrats' hopes that such a document could, in fact, provide the impetus for impeachment proceedings against the president. It is a sleeper case. That's how Harvard law professor Alex Whitting is uh, describing it. If the D.C. Circuit were to accept the Department of Justice arguments, that would have potentially enormous implications for the future of the information from the Mueller investigation. Not that investigation alone, but future investigations as well that could close out a path by which that information becomes public. Well, the case at the appeals court was brought by attorney and author Stuart McKeever, who has spent decades investigating the disappearance of Jesus Galindez, a Columbia University professor and political activist who vanished in New York City in 1956. His body was never found, but there are indications that he was kidnapped and flown to the Dominican Republic where he may have been killed. The unsolved 62-year-old mystery, which also sweeps in the death of an American pilot in two uh, trials in Washington of a man charged with being an unregistered Dominican Republic agent, is so colorful and so convoluted that it inspired a 2003 film starring Harvey Keitel, The Galindez File. Maybe you saw it. Well, McKeever, 82, wants a judge to release secret testimony given to a D.C.-based grand jury that investigated Galindez's disappearance, but the Justice Department argues that judges don't have the inherent authority to release such information unless it falls under exceptions approved by Congress, which don't apply to the Galindez case or in many others, including potentially Mueller's investigation. I've been on the on the journey almost 40 years to tell the story, McKeever said on Sunday in a phone interview from the Southern California home. The Justice Department does not want this case to break the dam. Well, the arguments in McKeever's case next month will take place at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington, two floors above where Mueller's grand jury meets. 
A spokesman for Mueller's office declined to comment on whether his team is tracking the McKeever case. But one lawyer closely following the Trump-Russia probe said Mueller's uh, allies are aware of the problem the McKeever case could cause for the special counsel. There are people who are interested in the options open to Mr. Mueller and his investigation who recognize the potential significance of this case says an attorney who served as a prosecutor on the Watergate special counsel team. It certainly could complicate matters. Democrats win control of the House in November. The whole debate is likely academic. In that scenario, the House Judicial Committee could subpoena any report as part of an impeachment inquiry. A judge might um, uh, would likely approve that request because of a D.C. Circuit ruling in 1974 that approved transmission of a report to the House uh, on President Richard Nixon's actions in Watergate. If it's um, uh, it's if Republicans keep the House and there's no such subpoena that the McKeever decision could take on added importance at issue is a federal court rule that governs grand jury secrecy and lays out several exceptions permitting disclosures. There is no exception in the rule that explicitly authorizes a report to the public or to Congress for potential use in impeachment proceedings. So while this is sort of an obscure offhand uh, case, it could have significant implications moving forward in the president's um, or in the Mueller investigation of the president. And a judge in Seattle extended a ban on publishing instructions for 3D printed guns during state litigation over the controversial practice, handing a procedural victory to gun control activists. Well, the ruling handed down by the U.S. District Court uh, for the Western District of Washington marks the latest chapter in the ongoing battle over 3D printed weapons. Defense distributed a, a nonprofit defense firm had planned to offer the blueprints for download starting the first of this month. Uh, following a multi-year legal battle with the federal government. However, in late July, U.S. District Court Judge Robert Lansick, or Lasnik uh, stopped the release of the blueprints. President Donald Trump has also voiced his concern over the weapons. Advocates of gun control have argued that 3D-printed weapons could also pose security challenges as they pass through airport X-ray machines. Speaking um, in July, Defense Distributed Director Cody Wilson described current 3D-printed guns as mostly curiosities and said that the uh, big and bulky characteristics of the weapon would help identify them. I doubt seriously that it's, it's a real problem, he said. It's a problem, then uh, the security norms will have to change. Well, 19 states and the District of Columbia sued the federal government, alleging it reached a covert settlement with the uh, company Defense Distributed without notifying Congress or the Department of Defense about changes it made to uh, an export act that prohibited 3D gun plans from being posted online. Previously, Lasnik said that uh, his court is not the proper venue to decide this issue. So the 3D printed gun ban has been extended by that very judge pending a state challenge. Well, the federal district judge in Washington struck down uh, most of the key provisions of three executive orders by the president signed in late May that would have made it easier to fire federal employees. We'll tell you more about that when we come back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 54 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A federal district judge in Washington struck down most of the key provisions of three executive orders that the president signed in late May that would have made it easier to fire federal employees. The ruling was issued early on Saturday. It's a blow to Republican efforts to rein in public sector labor unions, which states that Wisconsin have aggressively curtailed in recent years. 
Uh, In June, the Supreme Court uh, dealt public sector unions a major blow by ending mandatory union fees for government workers nationwide. Well, the ruling is the latest in a series of legal setbacks for the administration, which has suffered losses in court in its effort to wield executive authority to press its agenda on immigration, voting, and the environment. Well, the executive orders, which also rolled back the power of the unions that represent federal workers, had instructed agencies to seek to reduce the amount of time in which underperforming employees are allowed to demonstrate improvement before facing termination from a maximum of up to 120 days to a maximum of 30 days and to seek a limit um, uh, workers avenue uh, to limit workers avenues for appealing performance evaluations. The orders also sought to significantly reduce the amount of so-called official time that federal employees and union positions can spend on unions business during work hours. We're very pleased that the court agreed that the president's far exceeded his authority, said Sarah the uh, chair of the Coalition of Government Workers Unions, in a statement. In their legal complaint, the unions argued that the executive orders were illegal because federal law requires these rules to be negotiated between government agencies and the unions that represent their workers. The complaint said that the president lacks the authority to override federal law on these questions, and the judge in the case... Um, Brown Jackson agreed, writing that most of the key provisions of the executive order conflict with congressional intent in a manner that cannot be sustained. Well, the White House had implicitly sought to preempt this critique in the text of the executive order, styling the provisions as mere goals that the federal agencies should try to bring about through bargaining with the unions rather than unilateral mandates. But Judge Jackson flatly rejected this maneuver, arguing that the law requires agencies to negotiate in good faith and that the executive order impairs the ability of agency officials to keep an open mind and to participate fully in and give and take discussions during collective bargaining negotiations. The White House, facing the latest in a proliferation of high-profile legal challenges, didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. But there you have it. Well, President Donald Trump announced on Friday he had canceled Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's upcoming trip to North Korea due to a lack of sufficient progress in denuclearizing the Korean peninsula. Peninsula, rather. Pompeo had been scheduled to travel to Pyongyang next week alongside Special Envoy Stephen Bain uh, for further nuclear talks. The United Nations nuclear watchdog reported this week that North Korea, despite promises to the contrary, has continued to develop its nuclear program since the president's historic summit with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un in June. Well, President Trump, who previously declared that North Korea was no longer a nuclear threat, added he felt China was no longer helping in the denuclearization process because of the tougher U.S. stance toward it on trade. China is North Korea's chief trade partner and holds immense power over its economy. I have asked Secretary of State Mike Pompeo not to go to North Korea, the president said at this time, because I feel... We are not making sufficient progress with respect to the denuclearization of the region. Additionally, because of our much tougher trade stance with China, I do not believe they're helping. Well, Trump concluded the trio of tweets by sending his uh, warmest regards to Kim. Secretary Pompeo rather looks forward to going to North Korea in the near future, most likely after our trade relationship with China is resolved. In the meantime, I would like to send my warmest regards and respect to Chairman Kim. I look forward to seeing him soon, the president wrote. Well, at their summit in Singapore, you might recall the president and the dictator signed a joint agreement in which North Korea agreed to work toward and complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula, while the U.S. pledged security guarantees in return. Critics blasted the agreement as vague and noncommittal. 
The International Atomic Energy Agency said this week it had limited information due to lack of access to North Korean facilities, but had grave concerns about its nuclear activity. The president has cited the lack of missile and nuclear tests by Pyongyang as a success, stemming from his meeting with Kim, the first ever between a sitting U.S. president and the leader of North Korea. Meanwhile, South Korea said on Monday that the abrupt cancellation of the Secretary of State's meeting or his trip to North Korea is having an effect on a controversial inner Korean liaison office it planned to open this month. U.S. President Donald Trump abruptly canceled that trip, as I've mentioned. South Korea's presidential Blue House spokesman Kim Um, whose last name I will not uh, mispronounce, said on Monday that the uh, canceled visit cannot be said to have zero effect on the plan for the liaison office. We were thinking of uh, the opening of the liaison office as part of a smooth series of schedules, including Secretary of State Pompeo's North Korea visit, then the uh, uh, inter-Korean summit. Now that uh, the new situation has arisen, there is a need to inspect it again accordingly. Well, South Korea has been building a liaison office just over the border in North Korea as part of efforts championed by the South's uh, President Moon Jae-in to improve ties between the two Koreas. The office, which the South Korean government said planned to open in August, had raised concerns among opposition lawmakers, analysts, and local media that the transfer of material for the office could violate U.N. and U.S. sanctions against North Korea. Well, South Korea's Unification Ministry spokesman on Monday repeated its stance that all the material for the liaison office are for the office's operation and the convenience of South Korean personnel and does not give any economic gain to North Korea. The spokesman also added the two Koreas continue to discuss matters such as the timing of the office opening after agreeing to open it soon, in quotes. How soon? That may be altered by this most recent announcement. Five o'clock, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. In the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jarrett Stevens. He is a pastor. He's also the author of The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves, published by Multnomah. We'll be back. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. If you've just joined us, welcome. James Blind is producing and engineering today's program. Later this hour, in fact, in our very next segment, we're going to talk with uh, Jarrett Stevens. He is a pastor, and this is his first book, The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves. The book is published by Multnomah, and he takes on nine instances in Scripture where there are mountaintop experiences uh, that we can share, not having to make that trek uphill um, in order to uh, enjoy. So that's coming up in our next segment. Well, the major shipping route located between Oman and Iran, where nearly one-third of the world's sea-traded oil passes through daily, may become a new flashpoint after a top Iranian naval general said on Monday that the country has taken full control of the Straits of Hormuz. Well, the head of the Navy of Iran's Revolutionary Guards, General Tang Siri, said that Iran had full control of both the Persian Gulf itself and the Straits of Hormuz that leads into it. Well, the strait, which uh, is, as its uh, narrowest point, is about 21 miles wide, has shipping lanes that are two miles wide in each direction and is the only sea passage for many of the world's largest oil producers to the Indian Ocean. It's very uh, contentious area, uh, area rather, says retired Lieutenant Colonel Bob McGinnis, uh, uh, the uh, 
Straits of Hormuz is where most of the oil from Saudi Arabia passes through, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The Saudis have constructed pipelines to bypass the strait, but a majority of crude oil is shipped by sea, meaning that any action by Iran to halt shipping may impact consumers across the world. The blockage of the straits, even temporarily, could lead to substantial increases in total energy costs, the agency said in a 2012 report. Well, at the beginning of August, Iran began large-scale exercises in the Straits of Hormuz involving more than 50 small boats practicing swarming operations that could potentially shut down the vital waterway if ever deployed for real. The drill came after President Trump pulled the U.S. out of a landmark nuclear accord with Iran and leaders of both countries exchanged fiery rhetoric, which I don't need to repeat. The um, the country routinely operates small boats in the Straits of Hormuz and is the surrounding area and is often threatened to shut down the highly traveled waterway. A check of conditions on MaritimeTraffic.com showed that conditions appeared to be normal with heavy maritime traffic through the strait. But that could change. If Iran were to follow through with any of the bluster to close down that vital shipping channel, a potential U.S. response would be swift. The U.S. and our partners provide and promote security and stability in the region on a daily basis. Lieutenant Chloe Morgan, U.S. Naval Forces Central Command spokesperson, said in a statement, Together we stand ready to ensure the freedom of navigation and the free flow of commerce wherever international law allows. General Joseph Votel, head of the U.S. Central Command, said earlier this month that Iran was showcasing its military capabilities and has the ability to plant mines and explosive boats in the waterway, as well as use missiles and radar along the coast. He stressed the U.S. and allies routinely train for that possibility and are prepared to ensure that freedom of navigation and commerce continues in those waters. We are aware of what's going on and we remain ready to protect ourselves. So a very serious uh, situation developing there. I don't know if you have a pad of paper, you're just writing down things you can be praying about and uh, people you can be praying for, but that might be a, a good idea. Meanwhile, China's ruling Communist Party has issued a revised set of regulations governing members' behavior, threatening punishment for spreading political rumors, and recommending those who cling to religious beliefs be asked to leave the party. Well, Chinese President Xi Jinping delivered his opening remarks to the members of the Global Chief Executive Committee during a roundtable summit at the uh, state um, guest house in Beijing, China, on the 21st of June. Uh, President uh, Xi's ongoing crackdown against deep, uh, deep-rooted deep corruption began six years ago when he took office. He's shaken up the party with Xi warning, like other leaders before him, that the party's very survival is at stake. Xi has accrued more power than any other, uh, any of his immediate predecessors and has intensified efforts to ensure cadres are loyal, disciplined, upright, and honest. In other words, consistent with the core principles of the Communist Party. The updated discipline rules released late on Sunday by uh, the Graft Watchdog, the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, but an effort, um, in effect rather, the 18th, put into written form many orders that are in practice already in effect. In the most serious cases where a law has been broken, party members can be prosecuted, but in many cases the most severe punishment that can be meted out is expulsion from the party. Xi's name has also been written into the revised rules, as it is already in the party and country's constitution, putting him at the very center of party law. Party members are not allowed to speak out against central party policies or decisions, nor can they uh, spread.
spread political rumors or damage the party's unity, the new rules say. Party members and officials uh, must correctly exercise the power granted them by the people, be clean and upright, oppose any abuse of power or behavior that seeks personal benefit, one new clause says. Another new clause takes aim at party members who are also religious. While the country's constitution guarantees freedom of religion, the party is officially atheist and party members are supposed to be too. Party members who have religious beliefs should have strength in thought education. If they still don't change after uh, help and education from the party organization, they should be encouraged to leave the party. In other words, you're Christian, you got to go. If you are uh, other minority religions, you got to go. Well, those who attend activities that use religion for incitement, and they would uh, essentially uh, encourage uh, any a group of religious uh, believers, uh, they would describe, define them as activities that use religious incitement, will be expelled according to the rules. So you may hold religious beliefs, but if you attend meetings, that's an even um, greater offense. Another new clause calls for punishment to uh, distort the history of the country rather than just party or military history as before. Well, history is a sen- uh, sensitive subject for China as so much of the party's legitimacy rests on its position as uh, claiming great historical achievements, such as leading China to victory over Japan before and during World War II. So things are getting tighter for believers in China. Well, another bombshell hit the uh, Roman Catholic Church over the weekend in the form of a letter written by the Vatican's former ambassador to the United States, Archbishop uh, Carlo Maria Vigano, In the scathing letter, he calls for the resignation of Pope Francis over allegations that he knew the sexual abuse perpetrated by Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. McCarrick has been placed under disciplinary sanctions by Pope Benedict, and yet Francis acted to repeal them, freeing McCarrick to continue his predatory ways. Now, Vigano blasted Francis, writing, he knew from at least June 23, 2013, that McCarrick uh, was a serial predator, and although he knew that he was a corrupt man, he covered for him to the bitter end. Indeed, he made McCarrick's ad- uh, advice his own, which was certainly not inspired by sound intentions or for the love of the church. It was only when he was forced by the report of the abuse of a minor, again on the basis of media attention, that he took action regarding McCarrick to save his image in the media, end quote. Well, in calling on Francis to resign, Vigano argues In this extremely dramatic moment for the Universal Church, he must acknowledge his mistakes and in keeping with the proclaimed principle of zero tolerance, Pope Francis must be the first to set a good example for cardinals and bishops who covered up McCarrick's abuses and resign along with them. Vigano alleges that the corruption has reached the very top of the church's hierarchy. His decision to reverse his... uh, um, the disciplinary disciplinary action of uh, previous leaders against McCarrick is the offense that he is uh, pointing to. And in his letter, Vigano also acknowledged the elephant in the room, writing of the widespread sin of homosexuality being practiced among the clergy in many dioceses. And he calls for a time of conversion and penance and says the seriousness of homosexual behavior must be denounced. The homosexual networks present in the church must be eradicated. Those homosexual networks, which are now a widespread in many dioceses, seminaries, religious orders, etc., act under the concealment of secrecy and lies with the power of octopus tentacles and strangle innocent victims and priestly vocations and are strangling the entire church. Now, it's important to point out, that's in quote, that Vigano has had uh, 
disagreements with the Pope from the very beginning. He is uh, staunchly conservative, believes the Pope is too liberal. And so it's not surprising that he would come out against the Pope. But these, this is a very strong uh, allegation to which the Pope said he would not respond. 17 minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Pastor Jarrett Stevens up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, while praying over what to teach at a youth summer camp, my next guest, teaching pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, realized that many of the most important events and teachings in Scripture take place on mountaintops. Well, this personal rev- revelation led him to see that God uses mountaintop experiences to change our perspective. Well, in his debut book, The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves, he introduces readers to 10 mountaintop experiences and describes how the events that took place or will take place affect lives today. Well, through his study of the Old Testament, he realized that when God wanted to reveal a truth, command, or a commitment from his people or to instruct them in a significant way, he would call his prophets or people to a mountain. Well, taking the readers from Mount Moriah in the Old Testament to Mount Calvary in the New Testament, he teaches that we don't need to climb a literal mountain to have a mountaintop experience, uh, that we are um, encouraged to invite God to speak through his word. And uh, my my guest is convinced that God loves uh, to give us mountaintop uh, experiences in that process. Well, Pastor Jarrett Stevens is a teaching pastor at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, one of the largest and fastest growing mega churches in North America. The Mountains Are Calling is his first book, and uh, he joins us today to talk about just that, making the climb for a clearer view of God and ourselves. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you and your audience listening to us today. Well, thank you so much. Mountaintop experiences, when you bring up the the notion, we tend to think, okay, there's not a retreat coming up on the calendar. There isn't a an event that would somehow usher in that mountaintop experience for me in the next few weeks or several months. Let's describe what uh, what you mean by mountaintop experience in your book, The Mountains Are Calling. Yeah, you know, if, you, if we talk about the mountaintop experience, and for anybody that's been a, a follower of Christ for very long, they're probably familiar with this term, and the way I kind of describe it is it's that sense of nearness to God, His presence seems almost palatable, His voice is very clear and speaking to our hearts, our resolve to follow Him is stronger than ever, and so we have these moments, and God is so gracious to us throughout our Christian journey to give us these mountaintop moments, but figuratively speaking, and I talk about this in the book, you know, you don't have to go to a physical mountain or long to go back to that camp experience that you had 10 or 20 years ago. You know, with God and His Holy Spirit living in us and His living Word open before us, uh, every single day when we spend time alone with Him, uh, figuratively speaking, we're having a mountaintop moment. I mean, you're spending time alone with the God of the universe. And so uh, I take the literal uh, happenings that that took place on mountains throughout Scripture, but I'll also talk about the figurative aspect of mountaintop moments, just spending time alone with the Lord and His Word. I think one of the things you just mentioned distinguishes a mountaintop experience from everyday life, and that is that undistracted moment or period of time in which we uh, have an opportunity to focus on what God is saying, what He's doing, and somehow moves us in a way that while we're distracted, uh, we may just miss altogether. Yeah, isn't it true? I mean, when we when we talk about our mountaintop experiences, like like I had growing up, we talk about camp. 
I mean, what does camp do? It takes us out of our normal routine of life. It removes distractions. And so you're giving God an opportunity to really uh, speak to your heart. You're more open to receive it, perhaps, uh, than ever before. And so uh, for me, you know, I look forward to getting to that mountain every single day with the Lord where I've got a cup of coffee. I've got my Bible open. Uh, it's early, so the kids aren't running around. It's quiet. And you're just kind of taking these distractions away so that you can spend time alone with the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we can uh, probably think uh, about a couple of mountaintop experiences, but you have several of them here. In fact, there are nine mountaintop experiences, some of which may be more familiar than uh, than others. Um, let's just review what these mountaintop experiences are, and then we'll sort of focus on uh, some of the uh, some of them individually. But what are these these exper- these um, scriptural experiences that you write about that help us to hear God more clearly and to understand? our position, our, our place in his plan a bit better. Tell us about these yeah, mountain experience. Well, you know, that's the thing about a mountaintop experience is you're, when you're on top of the mountain, uh, you know, God changes our perspective. We see things differently. This really hit me. Uh, we go to a, a place in the mountains every summer as a family, and when we ride that ski gondola up the mountain and we, we play on the mountain and we're coming back down, uh, my girls, my little girls love to pick out where we're staying and where we're going to eat ice cream later that night, where they want to eat ice cream later that night. And so, you know, the, the town that we're staying in looks so much smaller uh, from being up on top of the mountain. It changes our perspective. And so that's what these mountaintop moments in Scripture are meant to do for us. They change our perspective of God, who He is. And they change our perspective of ourselves. And so as we make our way through these mountains, I was just blown away uh, when studying the scripture. We know Israel's mountainous terrain, so it makes sense that things would happen on mountains. But you just think about some of the major epic stories in the Bible that we know, that we love, that we hold to. And so many of them took place on mountains. You have Mount Moriah where Abraham takes Isaac up. And I talk in this chapter just about the cost of the climb. Can you imagine uh, taking your child Here's Abraham at 115 years of age taking his child up the mountain to sacrifice him according to the word of the Lord. And how do you, how do you make that climb? And so I talk about the cost of the climb and uh, that it's not easy, but it's always worth the journey because God's going to teach Abraham something in that. Uh, we make our way to uh, Mount Sinai where Moses receives the law of God, which ultimately points to Christ. We see the holiness of God. We learn in that moment how God is holy and we're not. Uh, We make our way to Mount Carmel with Elijah and the battle of the gods. And uh, I love this chapter because uh, we, we love that story of Elijah calling down the fire. But what we forget sometimes is that before Elijah was ever called to Mount Carmel, he was called to a place called Cherith and a place called Zarephath. Cherith means to be cut down. Zarephath means to melt or to smelt. And so isn't that interesting? We love being up on the mountain, calling the fire down, being used by God in a great way. But oftentimes, before we can ever go up to the mountain, uh, God takes us through a refining process. And so those are some of the Old Testament mountains. And then we just look at the life of Jesus, and so much of his life revolved around special mountaintop moments. I mean, we could talk about his first sermon, his Sermon on the Mount. We could talk about his transfiguration, his crucifixion, his ascension, his promised return. It goes on and on and on. Well, it does. And we're talking about the book, The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves. One of the points that you make is that oftentimes when God wants to make a point that will stick, that we'll get, um, he takes us to these mountaintop experiences mm-hmm. uh, and that we don't really have to be on a physical location 
uh, today, we can open God's word and apply it. And um, that word can penetrate our hearts and we can receive the same message as clearly as intended at the time it was originally given uh, to the patriarchs in some cases and Jesus himself ministering uh, during his earthly ministry um, as well. Why do you think we so often miss that when we are studying God's word or is it because we're not studying God's word? Yeah, well, I think it could be a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, when we're not studying his word, God, the major way he speaks to us is through his word. And so when we're not spending time with his word, we are definitely missing these mountaintop experiences with the Lord because we're not spending time with him. Uh, One of the chapters that I deal with is the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus takes his inner circle up to the mountain and he is transfigured before them, literally, uh, for the very first time. Who he is on the inside is manifested on the outside, and the disciples see it. And, you know, Peter, who we know had foot and mouth disease, always opening up his mouth and uh, saying the wrong things at the wrong time, he thought, man, I want to just stay on this mountain. Uh, Jesus, let's just stay here. And uh, he, he wanted to build a tent and just let's live up here forever. But Jesus said, you know what? No, that's, that's not going to happen. Uh, we've got to get back down off of this mountain because you're not meant to live on the mountaintop. What you're meant to do is to experience the Lord there and then go back down to the valley, right, where the people live and uh, serve and love and share what you heard and what you saw on the mountain. Uh, this is this, this proves true in the Great Commission. Uh, when I was writing the book, I had never noticed this before, but Jesus gives the Great Commission. We're all familiar with Matthew 28, 18. Mm-hmm. Those of us that have been in the church a long time go into the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've committed. We all know verse 18. But did you know verse 16 uh, says that he called his disciples to an unnamed mountain in Galilee. And it's just a, a perfect illustration, a perfect picture that, look, I'm calling you to the mountain. You've spent time with me. You know me. I've invested in you. But here's the deal. You don't live there. You've got to go. So even figuratively speaking, we spend time with God in the mornings, we're walking with him, we get this mountaintop moment, and there's a time where we close God's word, but his Holy Spirit's in us, he's with us forever, and we're going to our office, we're going to our school, wherever he's got us, and we're going on mission uh, where the people live. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book, The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves. My guest is uh, Pastor Jarrett Stevens with a forward from Dr. Jack Graham. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Jarrett Stevens. This is his first book, The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves. And I think that's one thing we all have a desire for, is to, to know God better, to understand His Word better. And these mountaintop experiences can help us by opening God's Word. Well, let's look at some of these um, uh, experiences as you have detailed them in your book, The Mountains Are Calling. Let's start with Mount Desolate. Now, m- many of us know Mount Sinai, Mount Moriah, Mount Olivet, but Mount Desolate. And your subtitle is The God Who is Intimate. Tell us about that chapter and how that mountaintop experience can help us to better understand who God is. Well, with Mount Desolate, you know, it's very interesting uh, when you look at Jesus' life, the Bible says that he would oftentimes break away to a desolate place and pray. And Luke records that it would be a desolate mountain. 
whenever Jesus would make a big decision, whether it was calling his disciples, those first disciples, or uh, another decision that he was making, he would oftentimes go to a mountain and pray. And so I talk about Mount Desolate. Uh, the principle is really uh, one word, and that is routine. That if Jesus made it a priority to spend time alone with his Father, how much more uh, do we, as sinful men, sinful women, how much more do we need to make it a priority to spend time alone with the Lord? And so that's what I talk about in that chapter, just the importance of not just knowing about God, uh, this head knowledge, but rather this this sense of intimacy and personal experience with God, that we're making spending time alone with Him a priority and getting whatever out of the way that is stopping us from doing it. So I talk about some enemies of intimacy in that chapter, whether it's laziness or busyness or just complacency. And uh, so I outline in that chapter just some ways that we can uh, make sure that we're building the routine of spending time alone with the Lord into our life. Another of those enemies you write about is comfort. We in uh, 21st century America are, for the most part, very comfortable, and that can become a distraction. We don't see it as that way. We may be grateful for the comfort that we enjoy, but don't necessarily recognize that there can be a downside uh, to indulging in that comfort to the exclusion of things that have a greater and eternal value. Yeah, and, you know, you read the call of Christ uh, in the New Testament, and I say it like this, that comfort and cross-bearing, uh, they're two totally different things. They mm. can't operate in the same place. Uh, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That doesn't sound very comfortable. And so uh, oftentimes, uh, the way that our faith grows, what does God do? He stretches us like a rubber band and gives us um, you know, more than we can physically handle so that we're drawing near to him and drawing on his strength. And so uh, you know, if we're going to choose the, the way of comfort, uh, we're going to choose not to be a disciple of Jesus because you can't have it both ways. Another mountain I think many of us are familiar with, but perhaps are somewhat puzzled by and maybe even a little frightened by, and that is Mount Moriah. Uh, Abraham had a relationship with God. God assured him repeatedly of the promise that he had made, promises that they would be fulfilled. And yet God calls upon him to do something that seems counterintuitive is an understatement. Talk a little bit about Mount Moriah and how God reveals himself and what we are to take away from that experience and what uh, that story also reveals about us. Yeah, well, isn't it interesting? Isaac, the child of promise, uh, here, uh, Abraham and Sarah have waited for years for this child of promise, and we don't know exactly uh, what the age was. Uh, scholars estimate about 15 years of age when this uh, would have happened. Isaac would have been 15. That puts Abraham at 115. And so, just isn't it, you know, it doesn't matter how old we get, God never stops testing our heart, God never stops calling us to grow in a deeper way with him. And so here Abraham is at 115, is called to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. Now, God knows that he's going to provide a substitute. And when we read this story, we've read it so many times, we know that we're, that God's going to provide a substitute. Uh, but Abraham doesn't know that in that moment. And he makes this three-day journey, uh, some suggest 70 miles up this mountain. And you think, how on earth did he do this? And uh, I think that he just has, uh, you know, put one foot in front of the other. He went by faith. He, he had his eyes on God. He was trusting in God. And at the end of the day, God wanted to reveal himself to Abraham in a way that Abraham did not know. 
And the only way that it was going to happen was for Abraham to be obedient, regardless of the cost. And so that's what Mount Moriah teaches, that there's a cost to knowing God in a new way, in an intimate way, in a powerful way. There's a cost to it, but that cost is always worth it. And so, you know, for those listening right now, whatever God may be calling them to give up or whatever he may be calling them to do, regardless of the cost, the lesson of Mount Moriah is that God's going to prove himself, and he, he's going to prove himself over and over and over again. You're going to know him deeper than you've ever known him before, but you've got to keep climbing the mountain. Mm. Let's talk about one more, and that's Mount Carmel that reveals the God who is trustworthy. Yeah, what a great mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, Elijah Cullen, uh, the, the, the gods uh, of, of Baal, uh, make it drawing a line in the sand and just saying, hey, if God's God, serve him. If Bell's God, serve him. But enough of this one foot in one side, one foot on the other side of business. And he calls the fire down. And again, I think the lesson of this chapter is before Elijah ever calls the fire down at Mount Carmel, he has to go to, he's commanded by God, go to Cherith, a place that needs to be cut down, and go to Zarephath, a place that means to melt or to smelt. For God to use Elijah in a big way, he had to refine him. He had to cut him down where he wasn't relying on self. He was relying on the Lord. And, uh, you know, I know there's people that are listening to us right now, and they're in a season. It's not a mountaintop. It's a valley. It's a dry season. And they're thinking, am I ever going to get back up the mountain? Well, I think this lesson teaches us that, listen, sometimes God leads us through these valleys. And he leads us through these dry seasons so that ultimately, if we keep our faith in him and trust in him, hey, we're going to call fire down. And God's going to use us in big ways, but we've got to go through these seasons in order to make it happen. Once again, we're talking about the book, The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves. Uh, Climbing that mountain, as you described with Abraham, requires uh, some strain, perhaps, uh, on our part, and an act of obedience, a determination to uh, to go where God is is leading us. What are some of the major challenges that you find uh, among those of us who are called to the mountain, but are maybe dragging our feet just a bit? Yeah, well, the great thing about it, and what I would say to this question is, you're not doing it alone. You know, I think sometimes we think, oh, I cannot get up this mountain. Again, it's too high. Uh, I've got too much baggage to carry up that mountain. Uh, I just can't do it. And I think we forget that we're, we're we're not alone. Christ is right there with us. I mean, if you're a Christian, Jesus lives in you. The power that raised him from the dead is in you. So he's going to help you walk every step of the way. I mean, Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 uh, that he's going to give us everything that we need in Christ Jesus. And so as we make this climb, as we ascend the mountain to know him in a deeper way, we're not ascending it on our own. God is right there with us every step of the way. And so my encouragement is don't concentrate on what you may have to give up. Uh, don't think about uh, you, you know what, what God may be calling you to let go of. If you're thinking about that, looking at that, you're never going to make the climb up because you're going to be distracted. No, you keep your eyes on Christ, you keep your mind on him, and then just like Abraham did, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, you'll make it up that mountain, and God's going to prove himself all over again. Once again, the book we're talking about, The Mountains Are Calling, Making the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves. Jarrett Stevens is a a teaching pastor. The book is published by um, Multnomah. Thank you so much for writing the book and for taking time to talk with us about it here today. 
Georgine, thanks for having me. Thank really you so appreciate much. It. Thank you. Again, the mountains are calling. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a moment and uh, we will wrap things up. Uh, so stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, of course, fall is nearly upon us. Well, it's not that close, but you get the idea. And kids are either... Well, they've already started or they're about to start school. This is that season when it, it all begins. And I noted one article that um, suggests that kids are spending hundreds of dollars on personal stylists for back-to-school shopping. Now, I remember, you know, you'd get a couple of new things for back-to-school, certainly a pair of shoes because it had to last you throughout the, the school year. We might order something out of the Sears catalog. We might pick up a few items. And I think I've mentioned here before that my sister Donna and I, we would actually rehearse the first day of school. We would decide of the pieces that we had in our new wardrobe, if you could call what we had a wardrobe, and we would put on what we thought was the best look that we had for that uh, coming academic school year. And we would actually rehearse the first day of school. Um, We would select someone from our class. Um, In my case, it was Lori Keller. In Donna's case, it was, I think, uh, Tony Cazetto. Those were the coolest girls in our class. And one of us would play that part. She would play Lori Keller for me, and I would play Tony Cazetto for her. And we would um, pretend like we were walking into the school. And when that girl saw what I was wearing... I'm telling you, she was so impressed. Literally, she just had to stop. She might have even looked down at her own clothing and thought, well, you know, this designer outfit that my parents paid a lot of money for and these shoes that are like the thing for the season really don't compare to the Kmart items that she's wearing. Somehow we could pull it off in the rehearsal. It never quite worked out that way in the uh, real thing, but it was kind of fun to imagine Well, kids are apparently spending hundreds of dollars on personal stylists. Now, first of all, that's what the headline says. How many kids do you know that have hundreds of dollars for anything, let alone personal stylists? Now, maybe they had a a lemonade stand. Maybe they cut lawns through the season. I mean, there are possible uh, ways for kids to earn hundreds of dollars on a personal stylist. Now, Keep in mind, they're spending the money on the stylist. That's not to mention the clothing that the stylist recommends they wear. Well, here's what it says. Flynn may be 10 years old, but he's already, he already rather has a signature style. I'm 62 and I don't have a signature style. I'm really behind. Um, I like to dress up, the Philly-based fourth grader told The Post. Um, Padding around the powder blue uh, rooms of Madison Avenue Brooks Brothers as he tries on one dress slack and blazer combo after another. I take pride in fancy stuff. J. Crew is too much casualness, he says. The boy's 10, by the way. Uh, while he uh, trusts his own impeccable taste, the boy knows what impeccable means, and that in and of itself ought to be surprising. Flynn agreed to let stylist and personal shopper Mona Sheriff uh, help him find the classic clothes he's looking for. Well, as Sheriff recalls it, uh, Flynn's mother hired her, saying, well, here's the truth of it. Flynn's mother hired her, saying, my son dress is too old. And so the Manhattan-based stylist guided Flynn through a day-long shopping spree. What I would not have done as a 10-year-old for a day-long shopping spree, I don't care if it was Kmart or Learners, that would have been fun. Anyway, shopping spree that yielded more than $2,000 worth of clothing, including an $800 navy suit, $400 blazer, and a Peter Elliott I guess the blazer was Peter Elliott and $200 Italian Nubuck Michael Paskinoff leather loafers with a more youthful buckle. 
Because that's what you need when you're 10. You need a more youthful buckle to take you into school. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't tell you what I'm wearing now. I know the question comes up. Who are you wearing? I'm wearing my own clothes. What are you talking about? Anyway, and that didn't include Sharif's $200 per hour fee that mama paid for 10-year-old little boy to uh, get the clothes that he wanted, Flynn. Now, when I was growing up, my mother said, okay, you're going to get a couple pairs of pants and a sweater. You may or may not get to pick what that sweater and couple of pair of pants look like. We'll see how you do. Um, But there was no stylist. Okay, the article goes on. No longer a mainstay of the rich and famous, personal shoppers and stylists now cater to an increasingly diverse clientele or clientele. Uh, Some of them in elementary school, stylists uh, say most of these kiddos, clothes horses, simply refuse to endure another tense shopping trip to the mall with their parents who just don't understand. I I can't even imagine saying, look, mom, I'm 10 years old. Look, mom, I just can't endure another shopping trip to the mall. You're really you're you're really making me uncomfortable. We're not uh, buying clothes that make me feel like I want to feel. So we're going to have to hire someone. Shortly after, as I'm picking myself up off the floor, even so, Sharif, who has been a stylist for six years, was taken by surprise this summer when she found herself working with five kids ages 10 uh, to 17 on their upcoming wardrobes. I didn't have a wardrobe. I had a few clothes that we wore day after day. Even so, uh, Sharif says that um, she's been a stylist for six years, was taken by surprise. Uh, Kids have their own idea of style. Parents don't tell their kids what to wear. Uh, the way we were told when I was growing up, the kids call the shots now. Now, this may be something of a description of what's wrong with America today. I won't editorialize. Granted, Flynn's grandfather, who footed the bill, was dubious at first, thinking it would spoil him. Oh, you think? Um, Even though I thought it was ridiculous, it worked out great, the grandfather said. He's a Philadelphia businessman. Uh, He loved to get dressed up since he was about three. It's my job to expose him to clothing, and it's his job to decide. That said, adds Sanders, uh, whose newest client is a three-year-old, they sometimes need help. Who needs help? The mom, dad. Who's Who's the parent here, and why aren't they just picking clothes for their kid? Anyway. Uh, they want to pick uh, pick up pieces from Lester's, from Bloomies and Barney's. I have no idea. And have someone put it together for them, says the stylist, who charges $350 an hour and requires a minimum of three hours. You do the math. I guess these kids aren't going to college, or maybe they won't uh, be eating lunch in elementary school. She says her three-year-old client is being prepped for interviews at preschools. Because, you know, a three-year-old who isn't dressed well, who wants them in their preschool? I mean, after all, they're going to spill juice all over what they're wearing, and they may not make it to the restroom in time, but nonetheless, they're auditioning, apparently, and they're being interviewed, a process that also involves thousands of dollars of coaching. So parents are apparently spending thousands of dollars to be coached so that they can bring their three-year-old to an interview at a preschool in clothing that reflects the kind of uh, kid that three-year-old really is. The mom says we need the uh, to look the part, Sanders recalls. The school interview process in Manhattan is incredibly competitive. It's not insane to work with a stylist, she says. Well, she takes her young clients everywhere from street-savvy downtown stores such as Flight Club for kids, Mecca's um, Lester's uh, to Barney's. Again, I have no idea where some parents have their credit cards on file to pay for the uh, their spawns $300 Gucci sneakers that they'll probably wear for a month or two before their feet 
get bigger. $800 um, Montclair jackets, $1,000 Eve St. Laurent or Prada backpacks. Logos and knapsacks are hot for kids, says Sanders. She and other stylists say it's gratifying to help groom future fashionistas, uh, claiming that a strong personal style builds poise. How do you think you and I are doing, James? Do we have a strong personal style? Are you and I poised? Yeah, maybe not so much. Anyway, if you happen to get your kids dressed this morning, if school has started for them, congratulations. If their clothes are clean, congratulations. I think that uh, pretty much covers it. Tomorrow on the program, we are going to talk with Judge Tom Cole. In April through May, he um, did the El Camino hike. It was kind of an evangelistic mission to share Jesus along the way. We're going to give him an opportunity to share with us what that journey was all about. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blend for engineering and producing today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.